Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm very excited today to welcome Jesse Summer from the other side of the world. He's calling in from Iraq, and our readers, our close readers will know that he wrote a letter to the editor that kind of just warms an editor's heart, and he told us how much it means to get home town news while he's stationed in Iraq, and he can listen to the local scene as he's gazing down on the sands of the southwest Southwest Asia from a Black Hawk, 1,200 feet above ground level. So we thought, okay, we're going to talk to Jesse. So welcome, Jesse. Well, I really appreciate you having me on this like new expansion into the new media realm. Yeah. Um, as, I, as I said in that column that you reference, what's cool about the Altamont Enterprise is you have gone from being just a newspaper to a global media company, which is how <laughs> I'm able to listen and digest what's going on in my hometown through all these different ways of reaching me out here in Iraq. Yeah, and you asked ladies to write into our forum, and did you know that Barbara Vink has? She has written, I hope I don't crash the website with my contribution to support the irresistibly ravishing (laughs) Jesse Summers. So, yeah, we're getting response. But tell us, where exactly are you in Iraq? So I'm at a forward operating base, a FOB, called Q-West, and um, it's in pretty smack dab central north Iraq, and Q-West was previously a, a, an army installation in the prior uh, um, battle here, after the, the fall of the um, Saddam Hussein regime. Mm-hmm. And this post was uh, eventually, when the Americans pulled out, uh, it was turned over to the Iraqis, but then eventually overrun by the Islamic State. And then they were, uh, they were pushed out of Key West, and the Americans have, have reoccupied it. And so this is one of the fobs that I've been based uh, at over the last um, nine months or so at this point. And I've, I've, I've been all over the, the, the country, um, Baghdad and Mosul and um, the areas behind the Kurdish defense line in, in what we might know as, as Kurdistan, Kirkuk, etc. Uh, but this is where I have spent most of the time because it's so centrally located and easy to get to all of the other placements of the 3rd Brigade Combat Team 10th Mountain Division assets. So our brigade has uh, soldiers all over the country, and Key West is a, a pretty um, centrally located place that allows me to, to hop around as I need to. So what what is your job there? What is it that you do on a daily basis? So I'm the brigade attorney. My official title is a deputy brigade judge advocate. And a lot of what I end up doing is just kind of force management, which is a bit of a a euphemism for talking about military justice and punishing those who perhaps get out of line, as you can imagine, um, you know, as as is made clear in popular culture, we're governed by an additional set of rules and regulations codified in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And the design of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, especially in a deployed environment, is to ensure good order and discipline among the units. So 
a lot of what I end up doing is um, you know, punishing soldiers when they quote unquote step out of line. Um, but it's not nearly as, as perhaps egregious as you might think. So uh, a lot of you know small infractions are dealt with um, at what are called Article 15 proceedings, which are you know where they might impose like extra duty or maybe they might take rank um, a grade or two for soldiers that that. Um, you know, misbehave and in so doing, uh, arguably make it a challenge for commanders to ensure that the, the attention is placed on the fight and the, you know, the very real consequence of being in an environment like this. Um, as was reported last last fall, um, on October 1st, we, we, we were attacked by the enemy and, and lost a, a soldier who had deployed, had only been in country about a month or so. And I think it's one of those things to, to keep in mind that, um, you know, we are here for a very specific purpose, and that purpose is, I guess you could say, in contravention of the purpose of the adversary. And so at all times, if there is kind of a, a lackadaisical attitude, it's not just jeopardizing yourself, taking your eyes off the very real dangers that exist here, but potentially endangering the lives of other people, um, depending on what your, your job may be. And in a small way, every function that a soldier plays is in service, in the service of a, of a larger mission. Um, and one of the things that's remarkable about being in the Army is seeing how this big institution slowly and laboriously moves. Um, and the way it does, the way you move that many people and that much equipment and that, that much weaponry is by ensuring that everyone is doing their part. So I'm the, I guess I'm the bad guy in some sense that the commander needs to um, offer a little bit of coercive encouragement for someone to do their part, they turn to me. Um, and so that's one small piece of it perhaps the, the biggest of the small pieces, but then there's also advising on, you know, the mission specifics. So a set of operational law type matters that relate to the law of administering warfare. So I will advise on, on uh, you know, for example, strikes and lethal strikes and the implementation of a battle plan. Um, the, the type of stuff that I had originally thought was almost kind of exclusively what JAGs do. Um, you know, there's a good component or a good amount of, of what I do that is in service of making sure that the way we fight is done in accordance with international norms and international law and the Geneva Conventions and uh, just a, a variety of governing agreements as to the manner in which we to the best of our ability, bring some degree of civility to um, what is otherwise a really messy business. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a business much messier than war. But um, two things, as you were talking, popped into my head to ask you. One is this idea of feeling like you have to be what you call the bad guy. Do you have colleagues that do the same thing you do that you can relate to so that you're not out there alone being the bad guy? Because that sounds like a really tough role um, in the midst of a stressful situation. Um, well, I, I don't, I, I kind of, I mean, I should also point out, I, I, I say that with a certain bit of pride. Okay. Um, you know, there is an element of there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like, I'm not suggesting that, that I am perfect in any way, shape, or form. But I also think that what I do is is important. So, 
if a soldier tries to, through an accomplice, smuggle alcohol into um, into the, the theater, and they're caught because they get drunk on their way to guard duty, I have no problem bringing down the, the full effect of the law. Um, and what's, what normally happens is, you know, you'll have a commander who identifies misconduct, and it's the commander who actually has to be the punisher. All I do is advise and set those actions up for him to take action. Um, you know, I'm kind of like a, a, a conciliary in a, in a sense. The law is really invested in the commander. Mm-hmm. The commander is, is at you know a company level or a battalion level, the brigade level. They're the ones who are all powerful. So really what I do is I'm the, the bad guy in basically explaining to a commander what the array of options are. And I can say that in the military justice context, but I can also say that in the operational law context. I, I have the, you know, I guess the fortune on some level of being a little bit removed from the decision to utilize lethal force against an enemy. Um, you know, those those decisions are, are withheld to a commander, and it's the commander that, that you know, has to go to sleep at night after, um, you know, doing doing the dirty work. And so when it comes to um, prosecuting war um, and, you know, uh, executing a battle plan, having a sense that they're doing it in accordance with the law is both a means of kind of protecting them and maybe putting a little bit of a Band-Aid on a conscience, uh, because there's always the possibility of of innocent lives lost when you use firepower. Um, But then... You know, the element of hearts and minds. You know, I, I, I think that on some level I'm the bad guy as, you know, an enforcer uh, when it comes to laying the law down. But laying the law down also, in a way, makes me an angel in the broader context of when you prosecute war and you do it according to the law, you demonstrate to the people in whose home you're operating, in this case the Iraqis, that you know you are governed by rules that it's not just a matter of of um you know might makes right and and a cavalier attitude towards life you know there is an effort to minimize casualties and obviously i'm i'm spitting a little bit of the party line that's that's obviously the the most idealized version of of what we do but i can say that even if in practice there have been times where it falls short, that is the aspiration, that is the hope, and there's a lot of, um, you know, repercussions at all levels for soldiers who deviate from the effort to try to abide by some sense of a higher moral code in the way in which they behave and conduct themselves as soldiers. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned um, the Iraqis and, and demonstrating to them that you're governed by rules. Do you have much interaction with Iraqis as as you go about your work, or is, is it what, what's your relationship I, with I, them? I certainly, I, I certainly do to the extent that I have. Um, uh, there are people who are, in fact, Americans, but of Iraqi descent, who maybe work with us as um, translators, translators or linguists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in my in, in my job, um, I had a very um, a very eye-opening experience where I got to speak with Iraqi judges and law enforcement personnel in the effort to stand up um, prison space and ensuring that there was a, an opportunity, there was a, a means of holding those individuals who were convicted in Iraqi courts for crimes perpetrated under the ISIS banner 
because if we hadn't worked towards trying to secure prison space, then the you know this Iraqi justice system that is trying to reassert itself, reestablish itself after the incursions from ISIS, there wouldn't necessarily be on the other side of a conviction any type of you know enforcement, Actual a way to hold yeah, these people. Yeah. So, yeah, actual punishment. So, so that has been very interesting watching, you know, it, it, the, the, the steps of a very beleaguered state, something that went through, a, you know, trauma after trauma over the last, uh, you know, decade and a half, um, push themselves towards the reestablishment of the rule of law and holding members of ISIS, former members of ISIS accountable uh, at law and not just at the end of a gun. Mm-hmm. And that has been, um, it's been interesting both to see the way the war is, is moving now, but I would just also point out being here makes you realize, certainly makes me realize, how fortunate we are to be Americans with the American system of law. Because it, it, it only takes it only takes a little bit of time in Iraq to realize how fragile it all is, and it, it you know we would like to think that our institutions are established, but um, you know I just I'd refer you to, to the events in Syria um, or Iraq itself. It, it, it's it, it's not something you can take for granted. The rule of law is 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 very fragile. It depends on everyone believing in the rule of law and in, you know, um, the idea of some semblance of equal rights or, or due process. And all of that stuff uh, can be, it can very quickly disappear. And once it does, you, you open up a can of worms that, um, as we've seen here, is just very hard to, you know, to, to contain again. Yes, I can't imagine being in the midst of that. You talked several times, used the word fragile or fragility. Do you have a sense of if the government can stand by itself when the Americans leave? Or do you have a sense of um, the transition working or not working? Or can't you tell from the perspective that, you know, the work that you do? I, I wish I could answer that. I, I think I, you, you probably have just as, as good a sense as I might yeah. if you, you know, read read the accounts. I'm I'm not, I'm I'm not that close to the yeah. actual like civil institutions. Yeah. I just I just know that it's in the furtherance of their establishment, the civil institutions that were here. Do you have a sense of where ISIS is now, or how powerful it is now in the country? Uh, uh, yes, um, and I, uh, I think you know perhaps to, to the extent. So the, the official, the the, the 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 official line is that you know ISIS has been defeated, and I think obviously there are pockets of resistance. But I, um, you know, I imagine those type of questions are probably you know best handled by the the people in in pursuit of a, a final victory, both on the American side and sure. on the Iraqi side, which is to say, I probably can't can't speak to it. Um, uh, you know, in terms of authorities, but also, yeah. frankly, in terms of my knowledge, you know, I see a, a small piece of a, a larger battle, and you just have to hope that the left hand is talking to the right hand, um, both in, you know, the, the army mission here, but also then in terms of um, the way we speak about the battle against ISIS on both sides of the ocean, right? Yeah. With, um, you know, kind of the information that trickles back to you folks and, and what we get here. Well, um, 
Do you have a sense, just from the people that you deal with, your comrades in arms, what morale is like um, among the American forces? Do you have a sense um, that, <laughs> you know, there's a, a certain strand of Americans that think we've been there long enough, come on home, and there's another strand that thinks, my goodness, everything could crumble if you leave? I mean, is this something that you talk about among yourselves or is like political talk just kind of verboten because you've got enough to do with your, your day-to-day tasks? I think the, the, the point I would make instead is that, you know, it is something that's discussed and I think there are perspectives on both sides of the issue or, or maybe as many sides of, of an infinitely cited, many-sided issue as there can be. Um, everyone has a... Uh, a perspective on it, but I would encourage your readers or um, perhaps more accurately your listeners to ask soldiers what they think. So one one of the, the things that's more problematic is not what soldiers may think um, among themselves, but just that, that those perspectives aren't being more broadly shared with the civilian counterparts. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if people are curious, you know, it's it go out of your way to try to track down a soldier and talk to them about it, um, as opposed to me sharing kind of my thoughts or, or reporting on the thoughts of others. The, no, the, I, I can understand. Real... You don't want to speak for a large group. But here, let's talk about you then, because uh, that's what got me interested in having you on this podcast. I know the last time that we wrote about you, you were had a very different job in the military, you were um, working with a very new, at that time, Special Victims Council program. And just kind of back up and tell us, maybe all the way back, how, how you got involved in the military in the first place and kind of your pathway through it up till now and where you'll be going next. Well, um, where I'll be going next is 7th Special Forces Group based at Eglin Air Force Base in Destin, Florida. So I'll be, um, I'll be moving there almost immediately upon my return from Iraq. But um, as far as how I ended up in the military, I think it was just kind of a, 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 a sense of this is something, this is a body of knowledge and a cultural experience that I felt would be important to inform my efforts down the line to contribute to kind of just the overall sense of what it means to be an American. So I, I went to law school and business school. I did a joint JD MBA program because I felt that those two bodies of, of knowledge, law and business, um, I felt that the intersection of that was kind of what influenced the decisions that drive our culture forward. And one of the, the on a kind of a political level or a governmental level, one of the things that also seemed pretty clear to me is that the, the one irrefutable function of government is defense. And I felt that if I was going to you know, make policy when it came to um, you know, contributing in an advocacy form or in politics, that I at the very least would want to know what it meant to be in the armed forces. That was my kind of way of, you know, spending some years giving back to the country before I, I went off on my own, um, you know, my next chapter, whatever that would be. I just didn't anticipate that I would end up having such a blast. So <laughs> a I blast, joined the, really? the military. And, tell, and was, tell us why it's a blast. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I was, uh, 
you know, I'm, I was a paratrooper. So I, I was first assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. So I, you know, I, um, I immediately was, became, you know, I got to jump out of airplanes and then I pursued that life further that, and I became a that, jump master. Was that scary jumping out of airplanes when you first did it? Yeah, it's freaking terrifying. Are you kidding okay. me? It's out of control. It's, right. it's ridiculous. I can't even. Like, I can't even believe. I can't even believe that that's a thing. But you know, obviously, when you get up there, eventually, after you've jumped out several times, it starts to make sense, and you're like, well, yeah. I mean, it's probably within within four days of flight of the miracle of flight. I I imagine even one of the Wright brothers was like, wouldn't it be cool to jump off this thing now? And it is. It is cool. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun, and I became a jump master. And the cool thing about going to the 7th Special Forces Group, um, to be the battalion attorney for 3rd Battalion there, is that I'll, I'll get a return to the airborne community that I've kind of given up the last couple of years. So the, the group um, you're you know, with now is the... it ended up being the... just a remarkably... I'm sorry, say that again, man? No, the group you're with now is the 10th Mountain Troop. That, that's got a history coming out of, what, World War II and fighting in the mountains in Italy? Is that... The group you're with now, 10th Mountain? Well, so the 10th Mountain Division, based at Fort Drum, actually has this, this one brigade that is stationed at Fort Polk in Louisiana. And that's okay. the 3rd Brigade Combat Team. So I am in the 10th Mountain Division, which is like our hometown Army team, but um, I'm actually stationed down south. I see. And... Uh, and I've and so I've you know I I joined the army based you know kind of on the strength of my law degree as a judge advocate and went to the 82nd Airborne Division and then from there to the 10th Mountain Division and now I'll be going to Seventh Special Forces Group and uh, you know eventually coming back home to you know to Albany. Well, now which is why I always you know that's why it's what. That's why your paper remains my hometown paper, because even though I've been moving around, I still somewhat have the sense that I, you know, that my permanent address is Forestville. Okay, we're going to return to the place where we, return to the place where we started and know it for the first time, as T.S. Eliot said. So that brings us back to the start of the interview. What has kept you, which is unusual for a young man, I think, in your generation, what has kept you so connected? Um, we did a story once on how you and your friends made a, a video rap about Voorheesville. I mean, what is it about your upbringing or Voorheesville that wants you to, you know, that you want to come back and that you have this, this connection that you keep in touch even when you're over in Iraq? What is that? Um, well, so... It might be on some level kind of like a personal idiosyncrasy, you know, like I, I don't, I don't like, I don't have pets because I don't like it when my pets die. (laughs) So it's, you know, the the pain of loss has always been more, more profound to me than like the joy of possession. But beyond just kind of the the nostalgia that I always feel for my childhood and the, the people that I grew up with, I think it's kind of important to like take stock of what it actually means to be that generational component you referenced, like a millennial or otherwise. We more and more identify by shared beliefs, you know, and we kind of have have um, balkanized a little bit. You know, you've got the right and the left, and then within that, subsets of ideas. But we don't necessarily identify by that shared heritage anymore, and. The idea of what it means to be an American is so broad, like so broad, 
said, you know, only at that town level can you intimately relate to what it means to be yourself. You know, we, we used to live in these extended families or, or tribes, and in that context, you were forced to meet people who might have slight differences of opinions. Um, but you'd get to com- you'd be compelled to learn from people that you deemed family. And these are the people that I, you know, have a beer with at the Memorial Day Parade, you know, back home. Mm-hmm. I've been all over this world now, and I feel as though I only know, you know, the people who know me. You mentioned at the very beginning of this this um, podcast, Barbara Vink. You know, she responded to my letter yeah. uh, to the editor by by making a post. But it was remarkable is I, I read her her post, and what she says is, I admired and enjoyed reading Jesse back when he was in high school, and. That means that she knows me and is and is connected to me over the span of 20 years through uh, the Helderbarker, which was a, a you know auxiliary paper that, that the Enterprise published, mm-hmm. and and so it's it's actually interesting that that there's still an audience that I cherish there. I know the people who will hear this podcast, mm-hmm. and if I don't know them personally, I at least know about them. You know, I know they've they've probably stopped by Tasty Treat for ice cream in the summer. Or they've caught a movie at Crossgates, or they've they've bar hopped it down Lark Street. You know, I know they they might get a kick out of your old Men of the Mountain columns. Um, I know they they competed on the same wrestling mats, or uh, you know they sat through a siblings never ending chorus recital at the high school. You know, it, it is about that identity. You know, like I I I don't know what I am without without my hometown. You know, I'm 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 a Voorhees villager. And a new Scott, and an Albanite, but, but you know, before I'm an American or a New Yorker, I'm a new Scott, and and that you know, it, it to be a Voorhees villager means something a little different now that the diner has been torn down. I understand from the last week, and now that Smitty's is about to be a freaking gas station, um, you know, when those when those ideas move, I I I, I got it like. You know, change is inevitable. But I also think that we become so untethered from what it is that 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 keeps us, um, you know, conjoined to the people that care about us. Whether it's you know my my parents who still live in the area or <laughs> Barbara Vink. And I I should point out that I'm not trying to, to be overly rosy about it. You know, I know that the idea of being untethered to a place or, you know, if you've got this regional or tribal association um, can be problematic. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking that, you know, if we didn't have Holy Lands, people cared, like, a lot about, uh, you know, maybe we'd be able to move past the endless wars we aren't even aware that are fighting or don't know why we're fighting them. I understand that having a rigid adherence to one place and to not let it change taken to the extreme can be a problem. But I also would say that, like, I'm not just this anonymous commenter on a Facebook news feed, you know? Like, I, I grew up in Voorheesville, and I knew those people. And I am a reflection of who they were and their influence on me and the shared experience that we called New Scotland outside this feisty little city in upstate New York. I, you know, I, I 
If you tell me what street you come from in Albany, I can give you just off the top of my head a few attributes about you. And um, I, I would also just very quickly say, and I, I think I wrote to the Enterprise about this once, but in that book about the village, Dennis Sullivan has this like haunting final line, which is, you know, there was a railroad town here once and its name was Boriesville. Those people that shared the streets of our village years ago, you know, they endure if we remember them. But they also, you know, they teach us who we are. And I, I just know that there really is no place like home. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I don't mean to be overly sentimental about it, but, but it's true. I've, I've been all over the place. And, you know, there's just something about, like, having roots. And even if it, even if it hurts, watching a hometown slowly change, but at least being able to have a hometown. And um, a lot of people don't. You know, that is, that is an attitude that I think a lot of people don't share, but, but, but possibly to their detriment. You know, possibly to the, um, you know, the loss of, like, what it means to stand in the same place and be able to remember those moments that you were connected to a younger self. Yeah, and, uh, actually, what you're saying so, is you know, the- it's much more complex than I imagined. Your I view a home, and unlike the idea that you were saying the rigidity of place, it seems to me... You have much more fluidity in your view because these days so many people connect just to people like themselves online. And you're talking about a wider audience that knew your your whole life, but you that had differences within them that you can appreciate because of having been associated with them for so long. It's a very nice concept. Yeah, I mean, the most, you know, the, the most diversity... I'm aware of exists at home because I take the time to learn those people. I wish I had the emotional and mental capacity to feel as close to some dude that I meet at my next duty station as I do to Barbara Vick. Mm-hmm. All right. Like I, I hope, I hope that I had, I, I wish I could, I could do that. But the fact is, is that he doesn't know me from 20 years ago and I don't know him from 20 years ago and I haven't invested the time in, in fully like appreciating the complexity of who he is. That's what our hometown gives me a, a forum to do. I can see you as a multidimensional person. And, and, you know, you get those, like those people who bemoan the fact, I think there was like, I read an op-ed once about how there's no true friends after 30. And I kind of know what they mean, that you're meeting people who are already, you know, they already have, I have they've got identities that have ossified and they've, you know, they're already carrying their, their, their wounds and they're already carrying their, their memories. And they've got people who have a two decades worth of inside jokes. If I leave or if I'm not connected through the pages of the enterprise or otherwise my hometown, I'm surrendering all those inside jokes. And those are the things that at least just for who I am are just have always been the most sustaining and um, affirming. Well, on that note, positive note, we will say farewell, but we can't wait to welcome you home when you get here. So thank you, Jesse Summer. 
Okay, and thank you. It's always lovely talking to you, and I'm sure we'll cross paths soon again. I hope so.